Thanks for being here this morning, Four Oaks. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're continuing our trek through Matthew's gospel. If you've been here a while, you know that on occasion we'll take an overseas trip uh, around some sort of biblical history or story. So we've been to Israel, we've done a Reformation trip, did an Apostle Paul uh, trip as well. And so if you've asked, what, what, what's the next thing? Well, probably sometime next year, we're going to do what we would call a Lions of the English Faith. It's going to be a tour of the British Isles where we focus on um, authors and historical figures like C.S. Lewis, um, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, George Whitfield, those kind of folks. But in thinking about C.S. Lewis just for a moment, he was, of course, lifelong friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. But they had an ongoing debate as you know, they both wrote a few things. But they had an ongoing debate about the best way to write fiction. Lewis, as you might know, opted for a very straightforward one-to-one allegory with his character. So, for example, if you read Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, you know Aslan is Jesus and the White Witch is Satan and on and on and on. Tolkien, on the other hand, Thought this was much, much too simplistic, so he wanted to write volumes, tomes, right? Where his characters are much more complex, and they're shaded, and they have themes, and they're nuanced. And his approach to allegory was much, much, much more subtle. And we see this, don't we? If you've read his Lord of the Rings trilogy, you see this with the character of Strider. And the first time we meet Strider is in the inn at Bree, and he is this shadowy figure, this ranger who's nomadic, he lives off the land, and he's there mysteriously sort of watching over the hobbits. But as the story unfolds, you come to find out that there is a lot more to Strider than meets the eye. You begin to get little glimpses of the fact that He's not all he purports to be. In fact, he's some sort of king and has some sort of claim on the throne of Gondor. And then as it continues on, you you realize that his real name is Aragorn. And so finally, in this sort of spectacular revelation of really of who he truly is, you come to realize he is Asiliador's heir. And he has come to reforge the blade and to go do battle against the forces of the Dark Lord, Nick Saban. I mean, Sauron, okay? I just, anytime I can just get that in, I just, I love to do it. And it's this pivotal scene that's the clearest revelation of who Aragorn is and what he has come to do. Now, there's still plenty of battles to fight. There's still much of the story to, to undergo. But once his true identity is revealed... It changes everything. It sets a trajectory for all the other events in the story. And of course, Tolkien means for Aragorn to be a Christ figure. And as we see his journey, this is exactly the journey we see Jesus taking the gospel of Matthew. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been somewhat of a, a complex, shadowy figure, hasn't he? I mean, we've heard terms bandied about like Messiah, he's done, he's done some spectacular works, but he's also really mysterious. He'll do a great thing, then he'll tell his disciples not to, not to tell anybody. Um, you, you know that he's, he's unique in some sort of way, but you're not quite 
sure exactly how to put all these pieces together until Matthew 16. And it's here that Jesus has his Aragorn moment. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that the veil is pulled fully back and that we see Jesus in every aspect of who he truly is. And as we're going to see, this changes everything. This sets a trajectory for the rest of Matthew's gospel. It's, it's the fulcrum. It's the turning point. Literally, literarily, it's at the very center of Matthew's gospel. It's the pinnacle, literarily, it's the pinnacle spiritually. It doesn't mean that there's not lots to happen and lots of important things to go down, but it just means from this point, nothing is the same. And Jesus, this morning, is going to ask us a question That depending upon how we answer it will change the trajectory of our lives. Not just for this life, but eternally speaking. And it's the question he asked them, and it's the question he asked us, which is simply and fundamentally this. Who do you say that I am? No more important question can you ask and answer for yourself. So we're going to be in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together this morning. Beginning at verse 13, Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are just like the disciples. We cannot come to know you through flesh and blood. It is only through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that we know who you are. So, Lord, would you continue to open our eyes? Lord, for, if there are those here this morning who are genuinely wrestling with this question, or maybe who aren't wrestling with this question but should be, Lord, would you intervene in their hearts spiritually in a powerful way? Lord, lift the blinders that the blind can see. And so, Father, we commit this time to you now. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Some of you may know that if you go to the hub on the church website, you can download a sermon booklet guide that tracks with our preaching through Matthew's gospel. And you'll notice in that book, there is one sermon assigned to these eight verses. And as I thought about this, I just thought, you know, 
That's just homiletical malpractice to expect that. That is just expositional uh, irresponsibility to confine this to one sermon. So it's not going to be one, it's going to be two. There's just too much here, there's too much at stake, there's, there's too many questions. It's, it truly is one of the, if not the most debated passages in all of the New Testament. But we're going to confine ourselves to the first portion of this text, through roughly verse 17, and then we'll tackle the next, the last verses next week. But today, the, the title of our message is this, A Confessional Certainty. It's going to be the foundation upon which everything else sort of flows, and the points are going to follow from this title. So first of all, we're going to look at the context, then the confession itself, and finally the certainty that goes along with it. So let's look at the context. Look at verse um, 13. It tells us that Jesus and his disciples came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you had a map, you could see that, that Caesarea Philippi was at the northeasternmost point of the land of Israel. It was in Israelite territory. It was founded on the ancient city of Dan, but it was only technically part of Israel. You see, this was a thoroughly pagan place. Um, it was, it, it, it gets its name, of course, from Caesar. So Philip of Tetrarch Nick, uh, changed the name of the city to um, Caesarea, but to distinguish it between that Caesarea and the Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast where Paul was imprisoned and went through his trials and everything, he just thought, why not? I'm just going to name it after myself, all right? So, so guys, give this a shot. So Caesarea Philippi. Now, while technically still a part of Israel, as I mentioned, it was predominantly pagan. In fact, the name of this city at one time had been Pan, named after the Greek god Pan. And tradition tells us that there was a grotto, a temple there in Pan, where the, where the worst kind and the most vile kinds of sacrifice, idolatry, and sexuality took place within the confines of this temple. That wasn't that unusual for pagan temples at the time, but it was, certainly was true of this place. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus chooses this place to draw out the most fundamental and profound confession that we find about Jesus in all of the Gospels. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for a moment to try to understand this. By this point, now understand, the disciples were not the sharpest pencils in the box to begin with, right? But they were always confused, and they were very confused by this point. You see, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus doesn't really always do Messiah-y things, does he? He, he doesn't let the spotlight. He's not galvanizing people to overthrow the Roman government. He's, 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 not, he's not meeting their messianic expectations. He's not leading the popular uprising and overthrowing the Romans that they would have imagined. But here they are in the remote parts of Israel, undoubtedly very confused. They have this backdrop of pagan idolatry and worship behind them, and Jesus keeps reminding them that they are going to Jerusalem so that he can die. You, you, could, you could imagine 
their confusion. And putting yourself in the shoes of the disciples, if they are going to follow Jesus into the mouth of the lion, the teeth of the lion, they better have certainty, they better have clarity about who it is they're following. Who is this exactly that we have attached ourselves to? We need to know where to plant our flag. We have to have confidence. We have to be able to trust you, Jesus, if we're going to follow you. They need a declaration of truth. Crystal clear, not ambivalent, not ambiguous, not squishy. They needed crystal clear revelation of who Jesus is. And quite honestly, let's, let's, let's just get it out there. A lot of you might feel you're in the very much the same place. Pastor Paul, I, I do believe in God. I do believe in Jesus, but he's not doing Jesus-y things right now in my life. Things are pretty dark. There's sort of a spiritual radio silence. Or it might be, you know, I know God's been faithful in the past, but how do I know he'll be faithful in the future? Because right now, it's hard to see. Maybe you're just having plain old doubts, right? Which is part of being human. And you need to know where to plant your flag. I, I would submit to you, Every spiritually, spiritual crisis in your life, every decisive moment always has a subtext. And we, we may not say it out loud, but I think it, it, it's there. And it's simply this, Jesus, can I trust you? That's what we really want to know. Jesus, have you got this? Because, man, I doubt I, I don't, I'm having a hard time seeing it. I don't have a vision for the future. I'm just, I'm just hanging on here. And it's into this context that Jesus leads the disciples into a confession for them and for us. So let's look at the confession itself. Go back to the text here. Jesus, it's almost like he begins a spiritual round of jeopardy, Right? with a simple question, hey guys, come, come, come over here for a minute. Who, do, who are people out there saying I am? You know, get George Gallup up in here. Let's take a poll. Who, who is it that people think that, that I am? And they give an, an interesting set of responses. First, they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Now, we may say, well, Pastor Paul, we know John the Baptist was already beheaded, killed, imprisoned, but let's remember, that didn't get posted on Instagram, right? There wasn't a TikTok reel for that one. Most people haven't even seen John the Baptist. They've just heard about him. News travels very slowly, and so even though John disappears for a while, when Jesus is on the scene doing all kinds of amazing things, people just assume, oh, yeah, 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 that, that's John the Baptist. There's another group that says, no, we think he's Elijah. Now, why in the world would an ancient Israelite think that Jesus might be Elijah. It's because of a prophecy we see in Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, hey, this is this, the Messiah's come. He's come to prepare. This must be Elijah, right? He's preparing the way. And still others said, oh, wait a minute. He's Jeremiah. 
You see, in the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, there was a tradition that stated that Jeremiah would be the prophet to precede Jesus. Now, now why Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah's tagline might as well be, every, every prophet party has a pooper, that's why we invited Jeremiah, right? He, he's the weeping prophet. He is the prophet of doom and gloom and lament. And so the idea was that Jeremiah was the one that prophesied we'd get exiled. He's going to be the one to come back and prophesy restoration of our hope and future. Now, let, let's be honest. These are three heavyweights. Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, if there was going to be a Mount Rushmore of prophets, just put, uh, just put Moses up there with them. You have the four with Isaiah trying to photobomb in the background. You get the idea. Those four or five. So, so there's no shame here. I mean, people thought very highly of Jesus. You know, and it just reminds me culturally, I still think, I mean, as much as people are down on the church and down on religion and down on organized institutional church, Jesus still has a pretty decent reputation. Not, not, not across the board, but I, I bet if you sampled people, if you did a camera on the street, you went out into the, uh, the crowds of the Super Bowl tonight and interviewed people. Who, who, who is Jesus? T tell me about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? I mean, you'd probably get some, on the whole, some positive responses. He's a, he was a good dude. He's a prophet. He was a great teacher. Oh, we know he was a good example. He had lots to say about the way we should treat each other and, and, and love each other. And so the people of Israel, it, it, it's not that they're, it's not that they've totally missed, right? It's just that their vision of who Jesus is, is woefully incomplete. And that would be the same word for us culturally. So Jesus then asked question number two. I know who they say I am, but disciples, who do you say that I am? As I said before, this is the fulcrum, the pivot point of the entire book. The way you and I answer this question doesn't just set a trajectory for this life, although it does. It sets a trajectory for our eternity. There's no more important question than this. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, here's just a, a pro tip on evangelism. If you're like me and you struggle with being vocal about sharing the gospel with people you think may not know Christ, a lot of times our struggle is we just don't know where to begin. Sometimes that, that first step is the hardest step. And it's like, how, what do I say and how do I introduce this? But I find if you ask questions, it's interesting, people love to talk. So, so hey, what are you doing this morning? This is to me. Um, oh, I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm, you know, I'm the pastor at Four Oaks getting ready to go down to preach, preach a sermon. Oh, what do you preach about? Oh, you know, Jesus. Awkward silence. The next time that happens, because I did not say what I'm about to say, the next time it's coming, right? I, I'm curious, like, like, who do you think Jesus is? What, what a, what a, I think what a great way to push that conversation forward. That's what Jesus does. Let's go back to the text. Who do you say that I am? 
Now, Simon Peter in verse 16, let's be honest, Simon has good days and bad days, right? So far in the gospel, more bad days. But Simon has a good day. He makes solid contact. This is center field, over the fence, grand slam. Listen to what he says. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, there are things in this confession, kind of like Strider and Aragorn, that we've seen before, right? We have seen Matthew and the disciples mention this idea of messiahship. So that word Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. Hello, my name is Mr. Christ. That's, that's, not, that's not the way that works. It's a title. It means anointed, chosen one. It means Messiah. Okay? We, we, we've seen that kind of before. We've also seen Son of God before. Remember in Matthew 14 when Jesus makes the storm stop and walks on the water, they say, whoa, this must be the Son of God. And so they had a sense of this man has come from God, right? But there is something to this confession that Peter adds that we have not seen before and that brings everything together in a crystal clear way. Look back at the text. Peter says, you are the son of the living God. Is that, that term living God, it's, it's not an adjective, it's a title. And it's a title we often see in the Old Testament when God is speaking about his godness. The fact that he is absolute and sovereign and holy and that he has authority over everything. Just a couple of references, we could do many, but here's one from Deuteronomy 5. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? This is the God of Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and, and authority and words. This is the living God, Joshua 3.10. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites. This is the God who goes into the promised land ahead of the people and gives them justice and victory and success. I mean, this is the godness of God on display. What, what's the point here of this confession? It's subtle, but it's it's as obvious as the nose on your face as well. Jesus, please hear this, is not just the Messiah from God, although he is that. Jesus is the Messiah that is God. And there is an eternal amount of difference in those two things. There are many religious figures, authorities who claim to be from God. Only Jesus says, but I am God, the son of the living God. And up to this point, no one in their wildest dreams would have thought of something like this. The son of God in the Old Testament would be this idea that God is sending his messenger, sending his authority. But here we have the clearest Christological confession in all of Matthew about who Jesus is. And this response 
to Peter's confession shows us something very important. Look at Jesus' response to this. You have the confession, then Jesus answered him, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. One of the things that, that Jesus is pressing in here, in light of this response, in light of this confession, there are no half-hearted commitments to Jesus. It's all or nothing. There's no straddling the fence. There's no zone of neutrality. There's no Jesus is kind of a good person. They can kind of have some sort of sway over my life, but I kind of keep this part of my life for myself. It reminds me of of the game tonight, right, between the 49ers and the Taylor Swifties. There are no neutral ground. You either love the fact that she who must not be named is going to be in every other camera shot, or you hate it. And we know who you are. Oh, yes, we do, right? Matthew says it's all or nothing. You take Jesus as he is revealed in this confession because Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, You're absolutely right. You either take him as he is or you don't take him at all. But when we do take him as he is, there is a great promise and certainty given to us. That brings us to our last point. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, do, do we remember this word blessed from the Sermon on the Mount? Makarios. It literally means happy or flourishing or completeness. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying. Jesus is blessing Simon. I mean, this is a powerful thing. And he's saying, flourishing are you, Simon. Overjoyed with the joy of the Lord are you, Simon. The fullness of God's favor is upon you, Simon. For this most fundamental of confessions, this, there's, no other, there's no greater blessing than God could pronounce upon a person. But then Jesus says something startling. Look back at the text. Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What does that mean? Simon, you didn't figure this out on your own. Simon, it wasn't your cleverness, your scientific investigation, your pure heart. Simon, you didn't conjure this up on your own. You didn't simply wake up one morning and say, this is the day. I'm finally going to understand who Jesus is. No, no, no. You, You didn't come by this by your own intellect and vision, Simon. And that's because it can't be grasped naturally. It's only grasped supernaturally. Now, I think this use of the two fathers is crucial here. He says, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Your physical father didn't reveal this to you. 
because he's, he's your natural father. In the same way, your intellect, your heart is natural. By birth, you are blinded to the realities of Jesus. You're not born in neutral. You're blinded. You're born with a hardened heart. But the only way you can see, Simon Peter, the only way that you have come to know this is what? My Father has shown it to you. That's a spiritual work, not a natural work. And that's the only way it can come. Because no one seeks God, not one. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blinded by sin and so blinded by sin that we are blind to the sin that we're blinded by. We don't think we are, but we completely are. And so he's saying, Simon, it takes more than a natural birth for you to have seen this amazing truth. It's taken a spiritual one. And let me just give you a, a few sampling of verses that reinforce this idea. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now listen to this. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Two more, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written to the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then finally, John 3, chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What's the point here? Simon, for hoax, without God's sovereign supernatural grace, you never would have come to this on your own. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but I've revealed this to you. Now, as hard of a truth as that might be, because let's be honest, it strikes at our sense of fairness. It strikes at our sense of pride. Although, if we wanted to speak in fairness, we certainly could say what's fair is that God would open no one's eyes. Because no one deserves him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God if if we wanted to talk about fairness. But let me tell you why this is at the heart of assurance for the believer. This confession sets the stage for our teaching next week where Jesus is going to say, Simon, on your confession, I am going to build my church. And the reason for our confidence, our hope, our certainty is because it is Jesus who builds his church. It's Jesus. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And a lot of times, and I said this at the beginning of the service, we think about the church in terms of institution or building or organization. 
And we'll try to touch on some of those things next week. But fundamentally, I want you to remember this, folks. The church is you. The church is its people. The church is the family of God. And when Jesus says, I've revealed this to you, it's based upon my sovereign will that I'm going to build my church. The future is certain, not because of you, not because of who's elected or not elected, not because of the conditions of the world or the country or what's happening politically or in any other way. The future of the world is dependent upon me. I've got this. You, don't worry about all that out there. You, you, you proclaim me. You come to know me. You come to trust me. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he means this. I'm with you. If you've placed your trust in me, I, I'm with you. I love you. I, I, I walk with you. I'm working in you. I'm producing good fruit in you. And that is a word we all need to hear and remember. Because there is some sort of darkness of clouded vision that inflicts all of us. Maybe it has to do with your, your career and your vocation. Maybe it has to do with your children or your marriage. Maybe it's your physical health. Maybe there's, there's things where, man... This is, it's tough to trust you, God, but Jesus wants to remind us, I'm doing this thing. Just trust me. Just entrust yourself to me. And the way that Jesus guarantees this life for us is he doesn't stop in Caesarea Philippi. What does he do? He continues south to Jerusalem where he will climb on that cross as a substitute for us, as a sacrifice for our sins. Church, where, where do you need to have a fresh vision this season of the fact that Jesus is building his church, that he is in sovereign control, that, that he is not surprised, he is not caught off guard he, he's, he's, not, he's, not stu he's, he, he's not stumped at what's happening in your life. But he simply invites you in and says, even when you don't understand, just know I am building my people.